Well, I'll start with a bit of an introduction. I want you to imagine a fresh batch of new police recruits. They made it through the academy. And so now they're rookie cops. They've always dreamed of being police officers. They're proud to wear the uniform. And they take that motto seriously, to protect and to serve. They're a real idealist. They want to be civil servants. They see themselves as serving the community in an essential way. But as they start serving as new rookie police officers, they find it's hard work. There are many dangers and threats. The job is full of hardships. The bad guys are out to get them. And to make matters worse, it seems some good guys are out to get them as well. It feels like most people don't appreciate them. It seems like society resents them and really wants them to to go away. No one recognizes all their sacrifice and hard work. I mean, sure, they're compensated, but it's not like they're getting rich for putting their lives on the line for people. And so over time, these forces work together to produce a bitterness in their heart. These once young idealists start to sour to the system and their ideals. And at the same time, another set of forces are at work. As time goes on, power, all this power starts to go to their head. They are authority figures in society. When they command, people listen. When they flip on the sirens, cars part like the Red Sea. When they walk into a room, everyone immediately recognizes them and, and sort of fears them. They're, they're like the sharks of the ocean, uh, you know, of, of the land, I guess we would say. Even if you're not a fish on the menu, everyone stops and recognizes and respects the shark. And that is like the police officer. All this power starts to go to their head. I mean, after all, they carry a gun. They could take someone's life. They start to feel strong and important. In fact, I mean, they are the real protectors of law and order and society itself. People should give them more honor and respect. People should bow down at their feet for all that they do. Who else would keep the streets safe? And so this second set of forces work together to produce a sense of entitlement in the hearts of these officers. And so you put together these two forces of of a bitterness for not being appreciated at times with an entitlement for all that they do. It changes them. Over time, these officers change and their motto can change. From to protect and to serve to to protect and to serve me or to protect and to serve other cops. And this is how crooked cops are born. A few years ago, 17 Baltimore police officers were convicted in a broad kickback scheme. This kickback scheme involved taking money from a local body shop owner for referring car accident victims and survivors. So the cops would arrive on the scene of a car accident. The guy survives like, hey, you know, you should really take your car to this shop to get it fixed. And every time they did, they'd get a little kickback. 17 were convicted in this scheme, but 60 officers were implicated. It's a widespread corruption. How does this happen? Well, I would suggest it's a combination of of these forces of bitterness and maybe entitlement working together. I mean, after all, shouldn't they make more for all that they do? Shouldn't they get more appreciation? At the very least, a little more money. Now, by no means am I saying all cops are like this. This is, I believe, clearly the minority. And we in the church, we we love our police officers, and I believe we give them and all civil servants the honor and respect they're due. But there is a real problem among those who lose sight of their identity. A police officer, what is his identity? It's that of a civil 
servant. Their motto is to protect and to serve. Not protect and serve self, but to protect and to serve others. Even called to lay down their lives to protect and to serve others at times. It is those officers who really are worthy of the highest respect and honor. But those who lose sight of their identity as civil servants, well, it's, it's just a short leap for them to start wielding all that power for themselves, to better themselves, to serve themselves. Now, I bring this up just because there are, there are so many parallels in this case between the police officer and, you might say, the church officer. Now, granted, it's kind of apples and oranges. Ministry in America is not like you're putting your life on the line like a police officer. But it's still difficult work. It's full of hardship and long hours. It's hard enough to deal with all the trouble in your own life, but in ministry, you're also bearing the burdens of others, and that can weigh a person down. And as with the police officer, these inherent challenges are made worse when a person is not appreciated. Some ministers deal with sheep who are constantly nipping at their heels and grumbling and complaining. Even worse, some gossip and slander and try and run them out. It can be a thankless job like for cops. And it's not like they're getting rich doing it. And so the exact same bitterness toward the work can spring up in the heart of a minister or a church leader. And quick side note, this is not autobiographical. You you guys are wonderful. You really are great to me. I realize it's kind of heavy. But no, you guys are great. But there also, in some churches, some places, can exist that corresponding danger for ministers, for this power, to likewise go to their heads. The church leader doesn't carry a gun, at least I don't right now, but he is still an authority figure no, I'm just kidding. in the Christian community. He has the ability to direct people to greatly affect and alter the course of their lives. Then at times he is treated with some respect and recognition. In fact, in some Christian circles, the pastor is treated almost like a local celebrity, and that can all go to their head. And so in the ministry, as with sometimes with uh, police officers, these, these dual forces can conspire together and create some trouble with when bitterness towards the ministry mixes with the sense of entitlement. Well, that's how crooked ministers are born, wouldn't you say? And the motto of Church leadership likewise can change. It goes from to shepherd and to serve to to shepherd and serve myself. The identity of the church leader is what? Not a civil servant per se. He's a spiritual servant. But a servant nonetheless. He's a slave of Christ. He's a servant of God's people. But some, in some church leaders, this can change over time where they're out. They've become maybe soured. And they're just kind of in it now to serve themselves, to further their own interests, their own agenda, their own life, their own pocket. And they start to wield the power and the influence they have in the church just to better themselves. No longer to serve others, really, but to better themselves, to serve themselves. And they will lord their authority over others for themselves. Now, again, not every leader in the church is like this, just like not every cop is crooked. But I think we'd agree there's been more than a few throughout church history who have fallen prey to this. And I think both with cops and with ministers, it can be traced back to this loss of their identity. They've they've lost grasp of their core identity, which is what? For the minister, it is that of a sacrificial servant. That's it. That's, That's who you are, a sacrificial 
servant. That's the core identity of the minister of the gospel. He or she is merely a sacrificial servant, a slave of Christ. The church leader is not better than the other congregants or sheep. He's not more important, maybe differently gifted, but he's not more inherently righteous. Just another brick in the wall, as we learned, you know, talking about this morning in the temple of God. He's merely a sacrificial servant. And his identity should be focused on serving others, not being served. But if you as a present or future leader in the church, after all, this is a biblical leadership series we're going through, right? So even if you are a a biblical leader, not even a pastor, but just any form of a biblical leader, and you too lose sight of this identity, the identity of a biblical leader, that of serving others, Well, it's not going to be long before you too start to wield whatever, even if it's just with four people in a small group. It won't be long before you start to wield your little power and influence for yourself, to serve self. It's just so quick in our fallen condition and even in our our hearts, though though born again, it's still within us. And if that takes place, if, if you lose sight of this core identity of the leader as a sacrificial servant, the flock of God will suffer And beware, God will discipline. He has a way of humbling those who walk in pride and who lose sight of of the mission here, the ministry. And so instead, the biblical leader must constantly keep their identity in front of them. Who are they? Merely sacrificial servants. That's it. That's really it. They're slaves of Christ. They're bondservants of the church. And this core identity, it actually really helps put everything into perspective, all the hardships you might face in ministry and in the gospel ministry, puts all into perspective. I mean, look, so what that other people don't always recognize them or appreciate them? The only thing that really matters is that your master, Christ, is pleased with your service. That's all that matters. Why do you seek to serve in the church? I mean, how would you answer that question right now? Whatever level it is, why, why are you doing what you are doing in this church? Even if it's just a full chairs. Uh, is it so that others will recognize you and praise you and applaud you? Do you want people to pat you on the back and say, hey, great teaching, or, you know, you're, you're my favorite, or I'm just, I see you serve all the time and, you know, way to go. You just, are, you, are you in it for applause or or prestige, or what? I hope not. I hope you are singularly motivated to serve by simply the desire to to please Christ and to do the will of your master and to hear from him on that day, well done, a good and faithful servant. That should be our only drive. Also, keeping this biblical identity of servant in front of you, it also helps guard against any feelings of entitlement. And even if you do do a good job, and others may show you some appreciation. Well, that's, that's fine, but that doesn't mean the work of the ministry is about you. Because you're not doing this, whatever you're doing, to build your name, are you? Or your kingdom, your glory. It's not about you. None of this is about you. You should be doing all that you do for the sake of, of, of his name. And even at that, any success you might have comes directly as a result of his grace, doesn't it? So there's no boasting. You owe everything to him. You're you're just a servant. So don't let your head get puffed up with pride. You see how this identity just keeps you right where you need to be. I'm just a sacrificial 
servant. And pleasing the Lord is all that matters. Just do what you do in his eyes. That's it. And if you can just keep your identity as a sacrificial servant in the front of your mind, you'll be well on your way to being a true biblical leader who can really serve and help God's people grow into Christ's image. And after all, isn't that what it means to really follow Christ? Did not he come first and to lead us as a sacrificial servant? humbling himself to serve us. And if that's how he led us, and if we are to be his under-shepherds, should we not do the same? Well, of course. So I've spent a long time with this introduction, just because it it helps set up and even drive home our, our one and only point for our lesson tonight. We're here in lesson five in this biblical leadership series, and we come to study the identity of biblical leadership. That's lesson five, the identity of biblical leadership. And I only have one goal, and that's just to drill into your mind the identity of biblical leadership. That you you can't help but bringing these two words to mind whenever you think about biblical leadership. Sacrificial servant. Sacrificial servant. Sacrificial servant. If you recall, we not too long ago started this new series on biblical leadership we're aiming to raise up some more leaders in the church over time. But we've, we're beginning by laying the groundwork. You might want to jump to, you know, just tell me how to teach or tell me how to lead a Bible study. But no, first we're, we're getting to the foundation, the, the character, the essence of a biblical leader. And so we have studied the importance of biblical leadership, the mission of biblical leadership to make disciples, to present every person complete in Christ The power of biblical leadership, which is the gospel. That's how God changes people. And last time we we studied the tools of biblical leadership. The primary tools in your right hand and in your left, the the word of God and, and prayer. And these are all essential, fundamental lessons that build up the concept of the biblical leader from the ground up. And we continue that today with this next lesson with the essential identity of the biblical leader. We've talked a little bit about about the mission, and paired with that is the identity. Who are you? How do you see yourself? And for those of you in leadership or aspiring to leadership at any level, how do you see yourself? And I hope that after tonight, you just have a knee-jerk reaction, sacrificial servant. That's, that's all I am, a sacrificial servant. And to be honest, this is, a, this is a super simple lesson. I mean, we've already kind of taught it. It doesn't get much more complicated than this. It's not earth-shattering. But we're going to spend some time now in God's Word because that builds conviction. So you see it in the Word, you realize, oh, this really is the identity of the leader according to God. The under-shepherd in his church is a sacrificial servant. So we're just going to do some... Bible study now to show you that God wants leaders of his people to be sacrificial servants. Thanks. Yeah, good job. Now we're going to begin with the negative picture of of wicked and selfish leaders who are only concerned with serving themselves. So you can start by turning in your Bible to Ezekiel 34. Ezekiel 34. Turn there, grab a pew Bible, look with someone. Ezekiel 34. We'll look at verses 1 through 10. Ezekiel 34, verse 
give you a second to find it, and I'll start reading verses 1 and 2. Ezekiel 34. I'll begin in verses 1 and 2. It says, Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to those shepherds, Thus says the Lord God, Woe, shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flock? So Ezekiel begins his prophecy against the shepherds of Israel. But who is he really talking about? Is this truly against literal shepherds? No. Who is, he, who is, he really, who is this prophecy really directed to or against? Leaders? What kind of leaders? Is the priests and? No, this is before scribes in the Old Testament. The kings. So that the priests, the kings of Israel, the, the two offices that God gave to Old Testament Israel to lead and to shepherd the people. And back then, before Christ, the priests and the kings were separate. And the kind of the civil and spiritual leadership of Israel. But both were to work together in the theocracy to shepherd the people, to lead them to green pastures. Shepherding is a metaphor for leadership here. And he's railing against the priests and the kings of Israel. Those entrusted by God to shepherd the people and to lead them into righteousness. But these shepherds, these leaders, what were they doing? Instead of feeding the flock, they were doing what? Feeding themselves. What, what does that really mean, though? What's behind that metaphor? Personal gain. Yeah. Money back then, you know, food, cattle, just kind of fleecing the flock. They were getting fat off the people, living it up, so to speak, taking advantage of the people, living off of the sweat of others. And so God says to them, Whoa. Verse 3 You eat the fat and clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fat sheep without feeding the flock. Meaning that they reap all the benefits of having a flock without doing any of the work. They're failing to discharge their main duty, which is to feed the flock, to care for the flock. Verse 4 Those who are sickly, you've not strengthened. The diseased, you've not healed. The broken, you've not bound up. The scattered, you've not brought back. Nor have you sought for the lost. But with force and with severity, you have dominated them. I read this verse, I just see like hard work. For the literal shepherd and the leaders, so the hard work. It describes sheep who were sickly, diseased, broken, scattered, and lost. And for these wicked shepherds, like this is, this is way too much work. Just, we're not going to help any of these people. Let's just help ourselves. But the good shepherd would do what? Well, despite all the hard work, he would sacrifice his time and energy and even money and serve the sheep. He would find them and gather them and bind them. And this is servant leadership, caring for the needs of others. But instead of this, like at the end of verse 4, how did Israel's wicked shepherds lead the people? What does it say? By force, with severity, they dominated them. This is you know, gentle leadership versus harsh or leading by love versus fear. This is using your shepherd's hook to gently lead the sheep versus you know, beating them into submission and making them go where you want them to go. And verses 5 and 6, it says, They were scattered for lack of a shepherd, and they became food for every beast of the field and were scattered. My flock wandered through all the mountains and on every high hill. My flock was scattered over all the surface of the earth. 
and there is no one to search or seek for them. This is still describing Israel's history in the Old Testament because of the waywardness of the kings. The people were made prey for the nations. And without godly shepherds in their kings and in their priests, the people were just wayward and lost and and no better than the leaders. But God is holding the leaders accountable first and foremost. And so does this sound like, it's obviously rhetorical, but does this sound like a pleasing leadership style to the Lord? This domineering, taking advantage, fleecing the flock? Obviously not. God loathes this type of leadership of his people. And so verse 7, he says, Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, declares the Lord, surely because my flock has become a prey, my flock has even become food for all the beasts of the field for lack of a shepherd. And my shepherds did not search for my flock, but rather the shepherds fed themselves and did not feed my flock. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against the shepherds and I'll demand my sheep from them. And make them cease from feeding sheep. So the shepherds will not feed themselves anymore, but I will deliver my flock from their mouth so that they will not be food for them. Elsewhere and and later, there are actually much harsher condemnations against Israel's wicked shepherds. But in short, God will take away his sheep from them. They will no longer be shepherds or leaders. He will remove them from leadership and rescue his people from their mouth. In fact, we won't read this, but as the chapter goes on, God says, he will give them a new shepherd, one shepherd. He says, his servant David, this is talking about the Messiah, and they will be one flock with one shepherd over them who will lead them to green pastures. And of course, we know this refers to Jesus who fulfills these promises. He comes as the good shepherd. And Christ himself models for us what true, biblical, and godly leadership looks like. In stark contrast to these wicked shepherds, what do we learn from the good shepherd about how to care for the flock? You know John 10, verse 11 and following, I am the good shepherd. And what makes him the good shepherd? The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Would you die for a sheep? No, I, I, I hope not. Human life is way more valuable than a sheep's life. Would you sacrifice your child for a sheep, you know, to not get hit by a car? Would you push the sheep out of the way so your, and your child would get hit? You'd never do that. I mean, who would die for sheep? But do you recognize the gap is greater for the, the Son of God to die for us? That he would come and lay down his life for sheep. What kind of shepherd would do that? This is a good shepherd beyond even what we understand in a way. He says, after that, he who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and is not concerned about the sheep. But then he says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own. My own know me. Even as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. What's it a picture of? Christ as leader, sacrificial servant, sacrificial servant. And we might say his motto is to shepherd and to serve. May that be our our motto as well. Now look, granted, there's only one true shepherd over the church. 
It's Christ. He is the chief shepherd. But in his design, he seeks a multitude of under-shepherds to, to come under him and to partner with him and to serve him by leading his people, by shepherding and looking after his flock. We know this. The formal role for these under-shepherds is in the New Testament is that of elder, pastor, overseer. It's all the same person. The word pastor just means shepherd, by the way. But I want you to realize that inherent in discipleship, which is what you're all trying to do, right? We all are called to be disciplers over time, to make disciples. Inherent in the very act of discipleship is shepherding. And so, look, even if you're not a formal pastor, as you aspire to be leaders and disciplers in the church, that means you too must pick up this mantle of sacrificial servant. If you are a disciple, even if you're just a lowly small group leader and you just have one person, well, guess what? That, this now is your identity for that one person in that time that that's you. Your identity is no different. You are to be a sacrificial servant of them. You care for them and to shepherd them. As we said way back in the first lesson, would that all of God's people were shepherds? What if everyone just thought like a shepherd? You'd have, you'd have a healthy local church, a thriving, a mature, a cared for local church because the needs are bigger than any one person. Anyway, this means, like I said, you too must pick up the identity of sacrificial servant. Do not repeat the mistakes of Israel's wicked shepherds and, and use any sort of power or spiritual authority to serve yourself, to further your own agenda. And listen, it, it's so easy to quickly you know, parlay spiritual leadership into this industry where you're just reaping benefits off of your little flock, whether it's favors or goods or just money even. It's been done before, even, a, even in a little small group, you, you can do it. You can become their spiritual authority and they now just really kind of feed you and fatten you up and you, you like it. And you start to slowly kind of see yourself and you want to keep that going because this is serving you. But you must divorce yourself from any hint of a spiritual kickback that you have to watch out. Don't feed off of this flock. You have to come as godly shepherds willing to lay down your life for these sheep your sacrificial servants. Doesn't mean it's wrong, as the New Testament prescribes, for flocks to care for their shepherds in return, but let this not be your motivation. You are here, and as you disciple, you have one motivation, to serve Christ by serving them, and that's it. And he'll take care of you. You don't worry about that. Now, can you think of any other examples from Scripture of people who used their spiritual authority to just serve themselves and feed themselves. It was said earlier. Other people in Scripture. Balaam, yeah, that's a good example. Yeah, Balaam certainly used his leadership and authority to just serve himself. Excellent example. Pharisees. This is where the scribes and the Pharisees come into play. Uh, the, the examples par excellence, we might say, above all, of using your leadership to serve yourself. And what did they do? What were some examples of the things they did to abuse their leadership to serve self? You recall? Jamie? 
Yeah, there's an example, by the way, of David sending Uriah the Hittite to the front lines. He abused his power to, to serve himself, get out of that debacle. Yeah, that's another good example. But think of the scribes and Pharisees. What are some examples of things they did to serve themselves? Angel? Yeah, they manipulated money quite a bit, and they, they both really literally fleeced the flock and were quite rich off of the tithes and offerings of the people, and then would play games with their money to, to keep from having to offer it all themselves. So the widow would give everything and go broke, but they would find a way to keep all their money. Anything else you can think of? Scribes and Pharisees, how they served themselves? Yeah, they... they they strove for and guarded that the chief seats in the synagogues. They wanted to be front and center. They wanted to be seen. They offered long prayers. They were just doing everything for, for themselves to feed their ego, feed their bank account, just to feed a sense of self. Their spiritual leadership was really just about one thing, and that's serving themselves. And it was so tragic because they were, at the time, the top leaders of Israel. They had no more kings. And so these priests and scribes and Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, that this was their, their top leaders and how they so abused the people. And this is why they hated Jesus so much, by the way, because he called them out and he threatened their golden cow. You recall him overturning the money tables in the temple. In return, though, Jesus reserved his harshest words of condemnation for these selfish shepherds. You want to flip real quick to Matthew 23? Go ahead to Matthew 23. We're going to start moving a little more quickly here through some passages. Matthew 23, 5 through 12. Right after this, in this passage, Christ gives these eight woes, similar condemnations, words of condemnation to these shepherds, very reminiscent of Ezekiel 34. But before he, 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 he speaks of them broadly, still condemningly, he says, verse 5, of the scribes and Pharisees. He says, but they do all their deeds to be noticed by men. For they brought in their phylacteries and lengthen the tassels of their garments. They love the place of honor at banquets and the chief seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by men. Verse 8, but do not be called rabbi, for one is your teacher, and you are all brothers. Do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father, he who is in heaven. Do not be called leaders, for one is your leader, that is Christ. Whoever, or rather, verse 11, but the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. And you read this passage and, and just know there, there still exists this constant temptation for any in leadership to exalt yourself, to feed your ego, to start boasting, and to be puffed up in pride. The, the Pharisees fell hook, line, and sinker to these temptations, and they were they're just feeding ego off of their leadership. But you must beware self and really die to self. Like Christ said, and following him for all Christians, and especially doubly so for leaders, you really have to doubly die to self because it's, it's not about you. It's not for you. You have to humble yourself and be a servant. 
And then God will exalt you. And that's the only exaltation that matters. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. But he who humbles himself shall be exalted. It's true in God's grace and salvation. And it's true in principle and in leadership. Well, we'll kind of leave that for there. I think that's enough of a study on the negative side of this identity of leaders as a sacrificial servant. Let's look at some of the, the positive side to this of our identity as sacrificial servants. Go now to First Peter chapter 5. Getting to the end of Scripture, First Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. First Peter 5, 1 through 6. As you turn there, you'll find this passage is obviously directly given to elders and pastors in the church. That's the primary referent. But the principles of leadership for elders certainly apply to all levels of leadership, all leaders under them. As I've been saying, even the lowly small group leader would do well to to heed these principles, to share in this identity Anyone who possesses or exerts any form of spiritual leadership, you would do well to glean from this passage. Let's do that now. 1 Peter 5, 1 through 6. Look at verse 1. He says, Therefore I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that is to be revealed. Verse 2, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, Not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God. And not for sordid gain, but with eagerness. Now notice the shepherding imagery comes back. You find it all over scripture. It's really the the, the chief image for leadership in Israel and in the church. But also notice verse 2. He calls these shepherds to avoid two wrong motivations. For overseeing the flock. What are they? Look at verse 2. Just tell me, observation. What are these two motivations they must avoid? One, not because you have to, right? Not under compulsion. If you're in leadership under compulsion, meaning you, you don't really want to lead, you maybe you got wrapped into it one way or another, but it's not your heart's desire, get out. You're not qualified. God is looking for those who have a, a desire and a passion to lead his people. And secondly, another motive they must avoid, sordid gain, which is just, you know, corruption. If you're in leadership to, to make money, to fleece the flock, to take advantage of people, which it's, it's surprising how quickly in the early church people did this, how quickly they latched onto this new little Jesus movement, this church. It's just for gain, like we learned in Philippians 1 a while ago. And people still do this. And if that's your motive, To get something out of it, some sort of gain, get out. You are likewise disqualified, and and God does not take lightly the fleecing of his flock. And also verse 3, another one, he says, Nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. Every shepherd has an allotment. They're not your sheep. They're his sheep. He owns them, but he loans you an allotment of sheep. And this, those who follow you, that's, that's your allotment. And you are to lead them. How? Well, not as lording it over them. You know, as biblical leaders, again, back to our mission, as we disciple people and minister to people, what, what are we trying to do here? What are we after, again? 
okay, think back to earlier lessons. I know that's the right answer for today. That's our identity. Think back to the mission. What's our mission in leadership? Make disciples. Glorify God. Minister the gospel. Present every man complete in Christ. And in general, help people change. Help people grow into the image of Christ. Right? Sanctification. These are all you know, synonyms, good answers. We're trying to help people change. To be conformed into the image of Christ by ministering the gospel. Okay. But what do you do when someone you're leading, someone you're discipling, just doesn't change? They don't respond. They, they, they just, and they're going the other direction. They're, they're not doing what you say. They're not following your lead. What do you do? What do you do when they act out? Well, some respond to that with, with you might say, that the strong arm response by lording it over them, which is to resort to maybe manipulation or intimidation. Basically, you know, getting your sheep to fall in line out of fear. Like, you're going to do what I say because, because I said so. This is, you know, the fear approach to leadership. This is the picture of the leader who, who leads from behind, you know, with his shepherd's hook beating the sheep into line, all who fall out of place. But this is not the way of the Lord. We're called to lead from in front, which is to say we lead from example or by example. We, we just, we go out front, we show the way. Because in reality, we can't make anyone do anything. God has to do work in their heart to change them by his Holy Spirit. What can we do? We can show them the way and lead the way by example. We can say to them, hey, you just, just follow me. You follow me as I follow Christ. Like Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1. You should be able to say that. To the degree that I follow Christ, yeah, you follow me and make that a high degree. The Lord has to work in their heart. He has to change them. That's why we fervently pray. Remember, we learned that last time. We pray that God would do that work of change in them. But what we can do is to show them the way humbly by going out in front and leading by example. This is what it looks like to be a sacrificial servant. And then verse 4. He says, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. This is the only reward any under shepherd should really look forward to. It's exaltation by Christ. Nothing else really matters. Now, just to finish verses five and six, he goes on to say, you younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders and all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time. Notice again the connection here in the context to humility. Because, you know, both for sheep and shepherds in the church, both for those who lead and those who follow, isn't humility required? Humility is required on both ends. And for all of us, we have the capacity, it's in us, in our sinful pride and our flesh, which lives for self. We have an inherent sense of entitlement where we just think in our flesh, we should be served. Like People should serve me. People should serve us. This entitlement that's within our flesh. And it's just a humbling thing to get down on your knees and wash the feet of your subordinates. It's a humbling thing to serve other people tirelessly who never thank you, 
who, who never appreciate you, who even sometimes offend you. But if you were to be a biblical leader, this humility is just non-negotiable. This is just what it takes if you are to lead like Christ. And you know what? Stop desiring the exaltation of man anyway. That should not be what you're after. Your flesh is after that. But in the spirit, we don't care about the exaltation of man any longer. We're only after God's exaltation, which he promises to those who follow him and serve him. And just remember, he's opposed to the proud. He gives grace to the humble. Now, speaking of humility, Philippians 2. We've got a couple more passages to go. And so let's get through them. Philippians 2. Turn there. Philippians 2. As you turn to Philippians 2, you might recall, you know, Paul, Peter, John, and many of their epistles. How did they see themselves? We're talking identity of the biblical leader. And you would, you would quickly know their identity by how they introduce themselves. And so you look at their epistles and they introduce themselves. And how do they quite often introduce themselves? Does Paul say, hey, greetings from Paul, the, the grand apostle? Or you say, hey, hi from Paul, the grand master pastor? That's my, favorite. That's my favorite one, by the way. You can start calling me that, the Grand Master Pastor. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> my old college pastor used to joke about that. No, Philippians 1.1, Paul and Timothy, bond servants of Christ Jesus. Literally, slaves of Christ. I think he understood his identity. He was a great apostle. We might say that the greatest apostle. So gifted, wrote almost most of the New Testament But how does he see himself? You see that over and over again. Just a slave of Christ. That was his chief identity. That's why God used him so much. Then you get to Philippians 2. A landmark passage you might remember preaching through this a little while ago. Verse 3. This is a simple lesson. It really is. It's just a Bible study exploring the the core identity of a leader. That of a sacrificial servant. And and these verses, it's so plain. Verse 3. A call to all of us. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. These, as we learned a while ago, these are standing orders for all Christians, especially leaders. Like these are, these are marriage life verses. These are parenting Life verses, and they also should be leadership life verses. Just, you know, write them down on your heart, Philippians 2, 3, and 4. They will guide you in being a sacrificial servant. The, the thing is, they're just so hard to do. How, how can we really do this? It goes against everything in our sinful flesh. But the good news is, Christ leads the way. It, it is possible. He has shown us the way. Verse 5. It says, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Christ came first as the ultimate example of humility and sacrificial service. Now, two main ways. How did Jesus express humility? Two main ways I'm looking for. It's in the text later, but. Okay, coming to earth, the incarnation. Down on the cross, the, the crucifixion. 
And there are others, but two main ways he expressed the greatest humility ever. He did not lose his deity, but in veiling his glory with humanity, he was temporarily setting aside that the constant praise and adoration he received in heaven and that he rightly received. Instead, coming to earth, took on the form of a bondservant, really a peasant, and nobody recognized him. People weren't bowing down before him every second of every day. They thought little of him. And then on top of that, that he would humble himself to the point of death on the cross. Just to imagine that the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords would be despised and rejected to the point of death on the cross. It's just, it's really unimaginable. But he carried out this mission in obedience to the Father, all so that he might sacrificially serve us in really the greatest way. There is no greater example here. This is it. It's not the only reason he died to leave us an example. He literally atoned for our sins, but he also gave us an example to follow. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, the, the sacrificial servant. And so you go back now to verses three and four, and you may have a hard time doing this, treating others as more important than yourselves, looking out for the interests of others. It can be hard. It is hard. But look to Jesus. Follow him. He will give you the grace you need to, to be like him, to lead like him. If we too, like Paul, are slaves of Christ, and if you're a Christian, you are. All of us are. And as leaders, if that's front and center for our identity, then, then we need this. We need him to, to help and lead us and guide us to be like him and to lead like him. Now, a final passage, Mark 10. Let's finish here, Mark chapter 10. Just like I said, a simple goal, just parading through some, some passages before you that you would behold and, and conviction would be imprinted on your heart at every turn. This, this actually is God's definition of the biblical leader. This is the identity from Christ on down and to all of his under shepherds. He's just looking for sacrificial servants. And I hope that's you. We'll see it in Mark 10. Now you look at verse 41. It says, hearing this, the 10 began to feel indignant with James and John. Anyone remember the context? Why are the 10 disciples angry? Joe, you're nodding. You remember? Yeah, so you've got James and John before this. And they kind of sneak up to Jesus. They're technically with their mom, so they bring their mom. Now, there's actually a chance, if you put together scripture, that they were cousins of Jesus, so their mom was Christ's aunt, and so, or, or aunt, I don't know why I said that. Um, I'm not British, where would that come from? Anyway, they're kind of sneaking in, sneaking into to his right, you know, right hand, and they, they come up to Jesus and like, hey, you know, they believe the kingdom is coming any minute. Christ just announced, by the way, right before this, that he was going to die on the cross, but that's all going over their heads and in one ear out the other. They still believe the kingdom will come at any second. And so they, they want to be on top. And they go up to him like, hey, when, when you come in your kingdom, we want to be on your right hand and your left. Can you do this for us? And if they are relatives, it, it makes all the more sense. They're asking for this favor. And they expected the king to come, like I said, at any moment. And they want to be on top. But Christ 
tells them really that this, this kingdom greatness that they desire, it doesn't come by, by personal favors and this ambition. Now, verse, 10, or verse 41, though, it tells us that the other 10 were, were angry with James and John over this. Why is that? Why do you think the other 10 were indignant with James and John for having this request? They wanted the same thing. They just beat them to the punch. It's like used car salesmen. Like the first one get there, gets the sale. They, they were just angry that they didn't get to Jesus first. They all desired to be great in the kingdom. They had, at this point, we might say a selfish ambition. In following Jesus, they had tasted power and they wanted to take their turn to rule. And left to themselves, they would have been just like the rulers of the world. And eventually, like all the, the wicked shepherds of Israel, they would have resorted to the same means of achieving greatness. They would have stepped on others, domineered over others. Like James and John said a while ago, can we not just call some fire down on those people? Like they would have done that. What's interesting here in this passage, though, is that Jesus never rebukes their desire for kingdom greatness. It's not wrong to desire to be great in the kingdom. In fact, he doesn't rebuke them for the desire, but he does correct them. He tells them, here's what kingdom greatness really looks like. You want to be great? That's fine. Let me show you the real way to greatness in the kingdom, which is coming. Verse 42, calling them to himself, Jesus said to them, you know, that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great men exercise authority over them. But it is not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. You know, leadership in the church, it, it must be opposite in the world. And we, we have different motives, different desires, different goals. We have a different master. In the world, power is wielded to serve self. Power is obtained by any means necessary, even if, even that means stepping on the necks of others to climb the ladder to the top. It doesn't matter if you sin or offend others. All that matters is, is getting to the top. It is not the way, this way in the church. The way up is the way down. Greatness in the world involves just dominating everyone. So all fear you and, and therefore do what you say. It's the way of the world to serve self. But self has no place in the Christian life. We are to die to self. And therefore self just has no place in leadership in the church. Such self-centered and self-serving leadership has no place. It's not wrong for them to want to be great. It's not wrong for you to want to be great in the kingdom, to be used. It's just that kingdom greatness comes another way. And that's by what? By being a servant. By being just a a lowly servant. And verse 44, by being a slave of all. He says, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. You know, it sounds backwards. I thought greatness was measured in the number of servants you have. Like, who's the greatest? Whoever has the most servants. That's the greatest person. But we're not talking about greatness in the eyes of men. If you want greatness in the eyes of men, well, go to the world. But this is what we're talking about here. He's showing us the way to to greatness in, in God's eyes. Greatness in the kingdom. And remember, 
Christ's kingdom is not of this world. So, do you want to be great in God's eyes in the kingdom? It's not inherently wrong, but this is the way. It's the way of Christ. Follow Christ. It's the way of being a sacrificial servant where you too lay down your life to serve others. Whether that's, you know, even to the point of literally dying for others or it's to the point of just setting aside your preferences to, to show others favor or, or preference. But is this not what Christ did above all? Did he not show us this way of leadership to the extreme? He did, and he, he's going to hint at that in verse 45, which is, if you might remember from preaching through Mark, this is the verse in Mark. He says, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And there it is. You think back to Philippians, his mission of humility. Why did he come? The only one who deserved to be served. Every knee should just bow to him automatically, and and they will. But he came first in grace, in love, and in humility to serve. Not to be served, but just to serve. And that's what he did. And he did so by giving his life as a ransom for many. We can't follow him there. We can't give our lives as a ransom. He is the only and sufficient atonement. We, we understand that. But we are to, to follow him in, in this example of, of leadership. All Christians are to live in service of God and others. This really, honestly, this is the identity of all disciples. Sacrificial servant. It's really, we all should be like this in following Christ. But the biblical leader must truly embrace their identity here, and and nothing more. Sacrificial servant. I'm just a slave of Christ, and I'm fine with that. I don't need pats on the back. I don't need a claim. I don't need a million dollars or a book deal. Just a servant of Christ. I'll, I'll lead as he, I'll follow his lead. I'll do what he says. I'll be content that he is pleased. Good to go. And that's how the, the church and the, and the flock is really shepherded. You must die to self, not trying to, to serve self, but rather you give of yourself to others. In this, you reflect Christ, and in this, God is pleased. And then you will share in the, the, the exaltation that's promised. And so with this, we will we'll finish. I think this is enough. We, we could continue to string together passages to show, but it's already so clear that all who follow Christ, but especially those who seek to be under shepherds of the chief shepherd, this must be your identity, your core identity at all times, is to be a sacrificial servant. I've said it enough. I, I trust it's drilled into your mind now, and I hope you don't forget it, that you really keep this before you. It will guide you. It will guard you from, from the, the bitterness that can come because of the hardships of discipleship and ministry, or even the entitlement that might come from success. This will guard you and guide you every step of the way. And, and as you lead in this manner, whether you're a pastor of 10,000 or you're just a little small group leader with two people, still, what matters is that as you lead like this, you will hear from Christ if you are faithful on that day. Well done, a good and faithful servant. That's what we're after. That's why we're here that's why we're in this class. That's why we aspire to be leaders of his church, is to serve him 
and to, to, to praise and glorify his name for all that he did to serve us. Let's keep that in front of us, always. Well, that'll be it for tonight. We'll see you back next week for a few more lessons before we get to the practical side of this series. It is coming, but for now, let's go ahead and pray. Lord God, again, we, we pray and, and praise you. Thank you for a study in your word. We, we need this. We need passages like this to remind us, all of us, whether we're leaders or not, some might be simply servants with their hands. They may never aspire to a form of leadership in the church where they're teaching or preaching or leading a group. And that's fine. We all have different gifts. I pray we all take this lesson to heart, though, Lord, of, that we need to, to be servants, sacrificial servants. This is part of the identity of any disciple of Christ because we follow him. Whether we're leaders or not, we, we follow him. This is where he goes. This is where he leads us. This is how he, he showed us the way to greatness in the kingdom. And so may we follow. And I do pray, though, Lord, especially for those in this room who are right now serving as leaders or in the future someday might be a more formal leader in this church, that they would, they would take this lesson to heart and you would just burn this identity right in the core of their being, that it's who they are, that their heads would never be puffed up by pride, by accomplishment, that they'd never be soured by the hardships or the difficulties, that they would be just simply delighted and pleased to serve the master and to, to receive their affirmation from him alone and just to have delight, knowing that you are pleased, Lord, as we are faithful to just do what you tell us to do. We, we need this. And so imprint it on all of our hearts as we seek to serve you and your people. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.